This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, Yukon Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You're encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you today, this day before Easter and the day of Passover. I hope everybody is home getting ready for a great meal. Uh, This week's been pretty interesting for me. I got to spend some time. You know, one of the advantages of being at the University of Connecticut and being in an academic environment is you get to attend lectures. And yesterday, I was able to attend an outstanding lecture by Dr. Lori Devaney. Dr. Devaney is a physical therapist. She's a PhD in physical therapy, looking at the position of necks in pitchers. So training the neck to be more mobile will diminish the number of head injuries, uh, correction, the number of arm injuries. And with that, she looked at this. So it's, it's a thought that fewer athletes will need Tommy John surgery and things like that based on the position of their neck and doing neck exercises. Actually, I did a short interview with her and it was outstanding. So I'm going to play that in a future show. Uh, Also, today's guest, in the studio a little later on, we're going to have Dr. David Emmel, who's an ophthalmologist. He's chair of the Legislative Committee for the Connecticut State Medical Society. And Mr. Ken Ferrucci, who's the Senior Vice President for Government Affairs for the Connecticut State Medical Society. We want to talk a lot about what's going on in the state of Connecticut in terms of the opioid crisis. Uh, We want to talk about high-deductible health plans and uh, maybe we chat a little bit about medical marijuana. So let's get some opinions and see what the position of the State Medical Society is uh, on these topics uh, in particular. This day in medicine, April 20th, 1775, the Medical Department of the American Army was formed, and it was formed the day after the Battle of Lexington in the Revolutionary War. The reason this is an important day is because so much of the technology and many of the innovations that we use every day in medicine came from the battlefield and came from the military, especially uh, when we look at terms of trauma care, when we took a, take a look at mass trauma and disasters. In other words, how to get people treated quicker and more effectively in these situations. So it was actually in 1775 when Army and medical care became a big topic for the military. One of the things I mentioned last week is I was away uh, with the NFL Players Association for their meeting, the Mackey White Conference. And among the topics we looked at were some of the topics of safety in football and how are we going to make football safer at all levels. So one of the things we always talk about are helmets. Now, Helmets are designed to avoid head injury, not necessarily concussion. But helmets are getting better and safer and being tested now. So people are always asking me, what's the best helmet? What's the safest helmet to have? 
if you go to the NFLPA, if you look at, um, there is a website. If you go to the NFL slash NFLPA 2019 helmet testing, they do laboratory performance testing. And this is a joint function of the NFL and NFLPA. You could look at how these helmets are rated. And they're basically green, yellow, red. Red, you don't want them. You don't want them on your child. So I think it's worth going there and looking at that. We've extended that type of testing not only to helmets but to spikes and artificial surfaces. Artificial surfaces have become very popular now. Uh, They save on mowing the lawn, fertilizing the lawn, and trying to get the turf in shape. But there has been a serious problem in terms of more lower extremity injuries, particularly to the knee with torn ACLs and ankle injuries on artificial turf. The reason being, natural turf gives way. When you plant your foot on a wet surface, it breaks way. Artificial turf does not. It will dig the cleat in, therefore providing torque and pushing the knee over. So we're seeing more knee injuries. So the question becomes, what is the surface, or the safest artificial turf to be using? Unfortunately, most places are more concerned with the performance of the artificial turf. So what we've found overall is clearly playing on a natural turf field, grass, is safer overall for athletes, especially young athletes. This week, I got to see something on one of the sports channels about Greg Popovich. Greg Greg Popovich is the head coach for the San Antonio Spurs. Very successful coach. Actually, I believe he's the winningest coach right now uh, in uh, professional basketball. And one of the things he points to as a means of his success has been team meals. He will occasionally put together a meal with his players go to a very expensive restaurant, spends a lot of money on it, and he actually researches it. He researches it where everybody's going to be seating. He's found that the six people to a table uh, make for the best conversation. Very interesting. And he scrutinizes everything to it. And he's found that outside of practice and the sport, these team meals really bring the group together. You know, this isn't rocket science, guys. We used to have family meals, right? We used to have family meals where we brought the family together to talk, just to talk about things that happened during the day. So the meal and breaking bread have become, really, they are a key to not only more satisfaction in life, but better health, better communication. And we've gotten away from that, unfortunately, right? We have all these electronic devices. We have other things to do, work late, um, sports, right? So sports are always starting, evening practices, things like that. So I think that Greg Popovich just took a step back to become successful by highlighting the importance of the occasional meal where everybody sits together and gets a chance to talk about. Something we may want to incorporate in our lives to continue success. Uh, One last mention I want to get in. The flu is still out there, folks. So the hugging and kissing have got to back off on that. Okay, the flu is still out there. 
We're at the tail end of it, hopefully. This has been the longest season for the flu, but I'm happy to see that in church, there's less shaking hands and kissing, okay? You can wave, smile to people, share a greeting, but try not to start touching everybody and wash your hands. Wash your hands as much as you can so we can avoid the flu as we did a pretty good job of this flu season combined with the flu shot. We're going to take a short break now, and then we're going to be get back with my guest, Mr. Ken Ferrucci and Dr. David Emmel from the Connecticut State Medical Society. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and let me give you the phone numbers here. You're listening to Healthy Rounds. It's 860-522-9842, 1-800-966-9842 if you have uh, questions for us um, as the show goes on. So today I'm very honored to have as my guest Dr. David Emmel, who has been on before. Uh, it was about a year ago um, he came in from the Connecticut State Medical Society to talk about some of the legislative activities of the State Medical Society. And with him today, we have Mr. Ken Ferrucci, who is the Senior Vice President of Government Affairs for the Connecticut State Medical Society. By way of full disclosure, the Connecticut State Medical Society has been a partner of ours since day one on this program. It's not necessarily, I, I don't like to use the term sponsor because they have partnered with us to make this show great and be a great resource for me and our listeners on this program so that we can continue to stay on. And now it's uh, we're in our 11th year, uh, really, thanks to uh, you fellas. And I thank you very much and the State Medical Society for that. Thank you for having us on, Tony. So welcome to the show. Let's, let's talk a little bit. Let's start with basics. Can you explain to our listeners what is the Connecticut State Medical Society? Well, the Connecticut State Medical Society is an organization uh, specifically for physicians uh, that uh, addresses uh, all of the issues that relate to our ability to practice and deliver the best quality health care to our patients. So that, that uh, often involves legislative issues, which I'm primarily involved with, um, issues that um, are um, often at the state capitol, but also federal issues as well as regulatory issues that impact our ability to deliver care. Uh, we're among the oldest state medical societies in the country, aren't we? Uh, we are the oldest, actually. The, the oldest. The, the oldest uh, county medical association in the United States is the Litchfield County Medical Association that celebrated their 250th anniversary two years ago. Is that the, true? The, the state medical society was established in 1792. So just to give a little perspective about how long we've we've been around servicing our members and the physicians and the patients that they serve in the state of Connecticut. It's interesting because the physicians of Norwich back at the uh, around the time of the Revolutionary War were the first to propose board certification or certification of physicians. So I, I don't think people understand the rich history of medicine that goes on here in uh, Connecticut. What when we talk about working with the legislature, what are we talking about? I mean, how do you how do we how do we get the message out there that we need to promote better health for the citizens of Connecticut? Because really the State Medical Society has been the leader in that right along in terms of how do you go about your work in shaping policy at the political level, at the government level? 
Uh, well, of course, everybody has ideas about um, health care and, and what constitutes good health care. And there's no paucity of that at the state legislature. Uh, all legislators who um, enter uh, have ideas about what they want to do to improve or in health care. And our job is really to interact with them in any way that we can uh, to bring them up to speed on issues because many of them, uh, their own experiences is strictly what they've experienced as patients and not necessarily from the perspective of a health care provider. And that's where we can make a difference. And I think the, the, the biggest asset that we have as a medical society is our members. Our members are the resource that can provide information to legislators. We, we obviously have a, 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 a lobbying arm like, like I, I provide those services, but there's nothing more valuable to legislators than the education and the information that come from the physicians in the state of Connecticut. What gets their attention? So uh, I've been there with you before. Uh, what gets the attention of a legislator? Obviously, I mean, let's face it, your job as, as a politician is to get reelected. We know that. So how do we kind of break through that? How do you what what do you do, Ken? I mean, to get to them, to make them really pay attention and champion a cause? Well, it's it's education Um, that that's what our our job is. Most of them, when they get elected, they they don't have any background in in health issues. Um, They're coming from various backgrounds, be it in in um, real estate or, or law or um, in serving on local in local government, so it's an education process that we provide um, the information that they need. I know a few things we'll talk about today that are are huge issues um, at both the state and and federal level. Um, we're there as the resource to educate them and provide them, bring them to the, bring these issues to their attention and and give them the information they need to make their decisions when creating public policy. Well, talk- let's get right into it. Well, high deductible health plans. Uh, that's been something that's come on probably the last 10 years uh, in terms of people paying lower premiums but having a high deductible or probably similar having an HSA, a health savings account. And I've been told that those are really the plans that are best suited for the healthy and wealthy. Um, David, is that true? I mean, what, what would you say? Well, well certainly, Tony, it, it, those plans work very well for people who have the financial resources. Uh, but unfortunately, they're being heavily marketed, especially on the exchange plans, to people who don't have financial resources, and often in ways uh, that aren't clear, so that people are looking and shopping for a low premium and finding it, but not realizing that the health care they're purchasing isn't really going to uh, give them the health care experience they're looking for. So here's what I don't understand is, the exchange plans are the Affordable Care Act plans. Those are the plans that were put in place to provide more health insurance for people who typically cannot afford it through their employer. Why would we try to sell them a high deductible plan? Because they got on there because they didn't have enough money to buy a plan. Now we're going to give them a $1,000 or deductible? Is that what's being done? It It is, it, but I don't think it was the original intent of the Affordable Care Act to do that. It's I don't just, think it was either. What has happened as a, as a consequence, um, and we've seen the escalation of these uh, uh, deductibles uh, on a steady basis, uh, we've approached the problem, uh, or we've been impacted by the problem uh, as healthcare providers, because what we're seeing more often 
than ever is patients who are avoiding health care, delaying health care, um, and coming in uh, sicker and with more serious problems that require more advanced and more expensive care, things that could have been prevented had they done the, the visits that were preventative in the first place. So, Ken, here's a question for you. Is the Affordable Care Act going to survive? I don't. I can't tell you what's going to happen at the federal level. But what I can tell you is that here at the state, our legislature has already taken steps to codify into state law certain things in the Affordable Care Act that we see beneficial. And those would be codifying what are called the essential health benefits. Um, those are your, your preventive care, your emergency care things on a regular basis that people need to codify those. So should the ACA go away, that gets codified. Just this week, the House of Representatives in Connecticut passed a bill to codify pre-existing conditions so that regardless of what happens at the federal level, you can't discriminate in your insurance um, policies against somebody that has a pre-existing condition, whether it's been diagnosed already or not. Um, so regardless, I think Connecticut's taking steps to ensure that, that we have access. But like David said, the high deductible plans are kind of what have morphed out of the good intentions of the Accountable Care Act when it passed. So is that the way it should be? Should it be statewide? I mean, the United States is filled with a lot of different cultures. We have a lot of different states. We do things differently here than they do in other places. Should should it be that way? The way so we're going to take what's beneficial from it um, and get rid of what's not working and kind of create our own plan from that standpoint with federal support, obviously. Do you think that's the future here? Uh, it's very hard to predict what the future will be on on this issue, but um, I think it, it's safe to say it will be a combination of something federal and state. Um, we're really just at the beginning of this evolution, Tony. I, I I really it's hard to predict where it will go. So here's my problem with the uh, with with high deductible plans: the doctor becomes the bill collector, right? Because suddenly they've got this deductible that somebody can't afford. Uh, and and it's not uncommon to end up with several hundred dollars, even based on a visit. So, uh, how does that happen? I mean, how, why is that the role of the physician now to go out and collect bills? And it's a serious problem because it jeopardizes the patient-physician relationship. When you have a patient who's um, concerned or upset because they can't pay for uh, a, a bill, they have a debt, and they have appointments, they have uh, procedures that need to be done. It creates a hostile environment uh, that's not conducive to really discussing the appropriate steps to handling their health care. Uh, and we'd like to see that problem uh, diminished or eliminated. Uh, and we propose legislation to approach that um, by requiring the, uh, the insurance industry to handle the billing for the deductible. Well, that would, that would certainly solve the problem from the standpoint of not putting the doctor in a difficult situation. We're going to take a short break, um, and we're going to be back again. We, we want to talk about the opioid crisis. Uh, I want to touch on the topic of, uh, med of marijuana being legalized for recreational use. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. I was going to clean my room until I got high. Welcome to welcome back to Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. Mike Oakle's on the board, having a little fun with us, because we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in the state of Connecticut and nationally with the opioid crisis. So, 
David, can you explain to our listeners, just kind of recap what's been going on nationally and in Connecticut? Well, I think the important thing to recognize is that uh, physicians have really been on the leading edge of trying to fix this problem. And we were um, lured into it by um, attitudes like uh, pain is the fifth vital sign and that all pain must be eliminated in every single visit. Um, a, a goal that was unrealistic from the start. And uh, and now we're dealing with some of the consequences. And physicians uh, have, have been uh, instrumental in creating the prescription monitoring program that helps reduce pres- uh, inappropriate prescriptions for opioids and also in reducing our prescriptions. We've had a lot of educational programs through the Connecticut State Medical Society to address this issue and I think physicians in general have just embraced the concept of using the minimal amount of opioids that's necessary to get a person through uh, post-operative care or, or when they're being treated for chronic pain. Now, the scope of this problem, really, I mean, it started, uh, I guess, back in the 80s and, and has gradually grown since then uh, in terms of the relatively frequent use of opioids in large amounts. And we're always seeing now on... 60 Minutes or other programs where, you know, millions of pills were sent to a town of 400 people in Kentucky. Uh, So how does that happen? I mean, how did that happen at the corporate level, right? That's where this problem started because they were charging a lot of money for these opiates. How how does that happen, Ken? Well, I I think you need to, again, I know we talked about this in the last segment, separating Connecticut out from I mean, how does it happen? There was a complete misunderstanding 15, 20 years ago about the addiction qualities of opioids. Um, and there was an understanding that, that, that they were not addictive. And we've obviously come to, to realize that that was not correct. And hence, we now have an ap- epidemic. Um, but Connecticut's put in place, like David said, through the PMP, ways, ways to track that. And we've seen over the past three years, our annual prescriptions for opioids has decreased by more than 600,000 a, a year. Um, but it happens. Uh, I think that physicians have been at the forefront of realizing what has happened and, and now have changed certain curriculums when it comes to treating pain, as, as David said, as, as not being a vital sign. A, a, it's kind of a necessary um, part of the healing process. Um, but the other thing we need to do is we need to address issues of, of addiction as a disease. Um, I think that hasn't happened as quickly as it should have, and ongoing efforts to to create parity, I think, are are where we need to be. Uh, David, the PMP, I think you're referring to, is the system where we have to check the frequency of prescriptions that a person has received before we can prescribe a narcotic. So I go on the website and look to see, have they also been getting narcotics from 10 other physicians? Is that correct? That's exactly correct. Yeah. So that's where you really stop things. Well, I, I think that has really addressed the the issue of multiple prescribers uh, prescribing for an individual. Um, but there there still is a, you know a few huge um, drug infrastructure, illicit drug infrastructure that we're um, we're up against, and that's real uh, and uh, dangerous. Uh, and I think, as Ken alluded to, the next wave really in the is getting as many people who are addicted into medical therapy because we know it works. So let's talk about that. So 
What do you do? How do you get somebody to medical therapy? You're talking about methadone, suboxone. Is that what we're talking about? Or Those were all part of it. There are several different uh, medications. It's not terribly critical which one a person is using, but these programs where people are on chronic therapy uh, truly work and they protect people. Um, programs that uh, simply seek to uh, wean somebody off a narcotic often fail because uh, the tendency is to relapse, and uh, and that's our great concern. And it's a particular concern for people who become incarcerated, um, and and are go they basically go cold turkey off their drugs, and then eventually are released into the public um, with all their previous cravings and no protection at all. And many of these succumb. You know, one of the things I like about Connecticut, I think we've been somewhat innovative regarding the correctional system. Is there an effort to rectify that while people are incarcerated now here in Connecticut? Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, the Connecticut State Medical Society just signed on to an amicus brief uh, supporting um, a, a prisoner in Maine who is being incarcerated for 40 days and requested her Suboxone to uh, treatment uh, while she was in prison. Um, and now that isn't part of the procedure in Maine, uh, but she says it's appropriate because uh, uh, under the American Disabilities Act, and so there's a lawsuit in place, and we're supporting her position that she should be on treatment while she's incarcerated. Isn't the goal of Suboxone, though, and methadone to get you off of all those medications eventually? It's, it's a particularly weaning dose, is it not? No, the, 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 the evidence is that, that unfortunately, that that's a, would be a wonderful ideal, but the evidence is that the uh, once you're addicted, that never goes away and that you're at risk for the rest of your life. And the only proven safe methodology is to stay on the treatment. What about the, the treatment of all, with alternative medications? So we use um, the gabapentin um, and other pentanoids, anticonvulsant medications for pain that have been proven to be effective. Uh, do you know, are we starting to see a rise in those prescriptions because I think, Ken, you mentioned we're starting to see a lot fewer prescriptions for opioids now in Connecticut. Yeah, I, there, there's been a big effort for alternative treatments to find ways to treat pain without the use of, of opioids. Um, I think one of the problems was for the past 15 years, opioids were seen as the way to treat pain. And we, again, like I said, we found out that's not true. So I, there, we are seeing an increase in alternative treatments um, in pain, um, maybe less uh medication in involvement early with some physical therapy, um, getting people to understand that pain is actually, it's a good thing in many cases for somebody to have because it does show you how your body is progressing. Um, so yeah, I, I would agree with you that there are more efforts to increase alternative therapies um, and, and not immediately go to opioids and find other therapies first before you end up in that situation. As a physician... Um, it almost takes an act of God to write one of these prescriptions, to be <laughs> honest with you, in the state of Connecticut, right? Because if you use an electronic system, now I, I'm on the EPIC system, so it has to send me a code that I have to enter in. If I write the prescription, then it sends a code to my phone, my personal cell phone, that I have to enter into the electronic medical record to do that. And and I write very few narcotic, but usually it's somebody who's been on phenobarbital for years for their epilepsy. But by the same token, um, I, I think a lot fewer physicians are writing 
prescriptions in general. Forget about for pain. Um, you know, have you found that as well? I think that's absolutely true, Tony. Um, there are so many obstacles to really getting that. And, and even at the pharmacy level, I think they're being much more mindful of these prescriptions and, and how they're being used. Um, with that, we're going to take another short break because this leads into the topic of recreational use of marijuana. And I want to get on to that topic and the position of the Connecticut State Medical Society along with four other medical societies on this specific topic. You're listening to WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and as you can tell, Michael is still having fun on the board. But here's the topic. Medical marijuana is something that's been approved in the state of Connecticut. Uh, you have to buy it at a certified dispensary. You have to get a license to be able to purchase that. And that's been ongoing for at least the last few years. But now there's been a big push to legalize recreational marijuana something that's been done in multiple other states. And obviously politicians are attracted by the tax revenue. We could tax it. Uh, but if there are lessons to be learned from these other states, it's not a good thing to do. I recently met some folks from Colorado who told me it's been awful there because once the government gets control of the price of marijuana, they raise the price with all the taxes. So what do people do to get high? They buy something cheap called heroin. And their soup kitchens are inundated with people. Their clinics are inundated. People who previously worked are not working, so it's affected their workforce. So I have to ask you both, what are we doing in Connecticut? Why are we even thinking about this? David, maybe you could Fill me in. What when you're at the legislature, why are they even considering legalizing marijuana? Well, Tony, we, we've made a concerted effort to try to educate the legislature that there are health care consequences to recreational marijuana. Um, unfortunately, you know, one of the things we've seen is that with the medical marijuana, it it, it paints um, the the material as something that's be beneficial, almost universally beneficial. And coming out of Colorado, we're seeing evidence of uh, blood levels and people who have been in fatal accidents, um, increased uh, significant increases in emergency room visits, uh, particularly from the ingestibles, sometimes in very young children, um, very concerning. And we know there's a, a strong body of evidence uh, that shows that uh, marijuana in adolescence um, has significant issues with acute psychosis. Uh, increased rates of schizophrenia, and uh, problems with the uh, addiction. Ken, when you go talk to legislators, what are they saying? Well, they're looking at it from three different ways. Go ahead. Um, unfortunately, we're going with the public health aspect, and, and that's kind of the third tier. Um, they're looking at it from a revenue issue, much like several other issues on the potential agenda this year. Sure. Um, and they're also looking at it from a, from a social Maybe they'll pass it too. with tolls. Okay, well, tolls and but, marijuana will go yeah, together. But, but, or but when yeah. I say from a social aspect, um, and it, it's a it's a definite conversation that needs to be had. They're talking about the impact that it has on certain demographics in the state, um, people that are now incarcerated for 
the same amount of time as somebody who was dealing heroin for simply dealing marijuana. So they're kind of looking at it from those three different angles. Our goal as the state medical society is to focus on the public health aspect of it. And that's all we're focusing on. So when we look at it from that standpoint, there's really no reason to legalize recreational marijuana. Well, to go back to what David was saying about what is happening in um, emergency room and blood levels. But when you want to look at the public health aspect, we're seeing more and more reports that even on a regular basis, recreational users who need to have anesthesia are needing much, much higher quantities of anesthesia to undergo simple procedures. And if you speak with any anesthesiologist, their goal is to use the minimum amount of medication. Absolutely. Uh, the state medical side, Connecticut State Medical Society signed on to a a letter uh, to the, to the legislature, and in it, you promoted changing marijuana from a class one to a class two uh, medication. Can you explain why, David? Well, there, there are two reasons for that, Tony. One, one would be the immediate benefit of being able to research its effects. So right now, researchers are severely constrained in terms of their ability to conduct studies using marijuana. Um, if it's Schedule two, it becomes prescribable, and all those restrictions go away. So that, that's the immediate benefit, although it takes time, of course, to, to develop these studies and learn from them. Uh, the second thing... Uh, is that it, it, it avoids the impetus to just take it completely out of the system. Uh, and I think that is very important, too. Uh, we have in many states, maybe now most states, medical marijuana systems. And so it should be a prescribable medication, not just uh, a drug that anyone can use. While we're off the air, we talked a little bit about future efforts for this Connecticut State Medical Society. One came up that was near and dear to my heart, and that is attracting new physicians to come to Connecticut. We, you know, our workforce here in Connecticut is retiring. I think a a third of our workforce is now over the age of 55, getting ready to retire. Physicians are retiring earlier for a variety of reasons, probably the same reasons young people don't want to come here. Um, Why is that? Why are we not an attractive state for young physicians who finish their residency, because we train a lot of physicians between UConn and Yale, but they're taking off. Yeah, I, I think they're, we, we're very careful not to say that there's one issue um, which is causing it. I, I think there are many issues. First of all, um, we need to look at programs in place such as loan forgiveness and forbearance for young physicians. You've heard the the statistics that a lot of them come out of medical school with a quarter million dollars of debt. They need to find a way to pay that back. Um, You're talking about a a very highly concentrated health insurance market. So the ability for physicians to negotiate and be involved in in, uh, establishing contracts that allow them to provide services um, at an equitable level is is very difficult. Um, We do continue to have a, a very difficult medical liability Um, environment in Connecticut. We have certificate of need laws in Connecticut that are much more stringent than than other states. And and certificate of need is those are certain things that you need to um, get from the Department of Public Health and the government to be able to begin providing services. And a lot of other states have gone away from from implementing them. So it's not one um, but what we do know is that we are one of the worst states in in retaining the medical students and the residents that we train. 
Here's another thing, and I don't know if this is on your radar screen, but something I've recently become familiar with, and that is the visa program. So there are many very talented foreign physicians who have done their residencies here in the United States and want to come to Connecticut because Connecticut is a state that needs physicians. So they would qualify for the J-1 visa program. That's the program where you spend three years and then you get a green card and you're allowed to apply for citizenship eventually. We have one of the craziest systems in the state of Connecticut. Um, I was part of it two years ago. We were trying to get a young neuromuscular specialist, a young woman, to come here from New York. And she waited online all night. And she was number 29 of the 30 visas. But there were enough attorneys in line ahead of time with six applications for their clients. So she didn't get it. So she got an extension for a year. This year, they decided they were going to have a lottery, right? So it's a lottery system. This is how, we're, this is how we do business here. We're going to – like you, you make your pick six to whether or not we're going to have physicians stay here. Fortunately or unfortunately, there were 30 visas. Only 29 people have, were applied for. So everybody got one. So good for the 29 people, but why did only 29 people want to come to our state? So we have to look at that from a lot of standpoints because this is an untapped pool of very, very talented young physicians who bring a lot to us. And, and, and I think the State Medical Society can really have an effort in that area. With that, I want to thank you both for coming in today. Um, this has been great uh, just to get this information out there. The State Medical Society, uh, I am a proud member of the State Medical Society. Uh, my children are members of the State Medical Society, and it's an important part of what we do as physicians to protect everyone's health. Ken, thank you. And David, thank you for the time. Thank you. you. It's you. always a pleasure and a privilege. With that, many thanks to our studio producer. Mike Oakle has been back on the board today. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week on Healthy Rounds, we're going to be discussing some orthopedic problems. We're going to be looking at orthopedic hand surgery uh, with uh, a guest who has been on the show before, uh, Dr. Stephen Scarangella. Uh, next up on WTIC, you're going to have Garden Talk with Len. I want to make sure everybody has a very happy and safe holiday. Uh, today and tomorrow. Please remember, though, you can help save lives by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. You do that today by going to registerme.org. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.